Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Daniel once again. And this will be the fourth and final message of our short overview series of Daniel. We're going to overview chapters 8 through 12 this morning, and those can be found in the Black Bibles from page 745 to page 750. As you're turning there and as we get adjusted and ready for this message, I want to ask you if you've noticed the difference between the way the world history is told by those who are outside of the faith, whether it be Jewish faith or Christian faith, and the way that the biblical history is told. What do they emphasize? For example, if you were living around the first or second century, would you think that the Roman Empire would be a big deal? Well, in the world history books, yes, that's a big deal in the first and second century. But in the Bible, Rome appears a few times. Instead, small backwoods towns like Bethlehem and Nazareth become prominent in the story and history of the Bible. If you were to read history books, Caesar and Herod, they would be a big deal in the first and second century. But if you read the Bible, you'll only see them mentioned a few or a handful of times compared to unknown fishermen or a Jewish scholar named Peter or Paul or a guy named Jesus who was born in one of these backwoods towns of Bethlehem. It begs the question, what really is important in world history? And as we finish up the book of Daniel, many prophetic words that are going to be historical accounts of wars and kingdoms and kings are going to be addressed. But what's emphasized? What's focused? What time and attention is given in Daniel 8 through 12? It's not the way the history books are written. One little tidbit example would be if you were to read about this time period that Daniel's placed in, in the world history books, you'd read all about a guy named Alexander the Great and his conquests, and his power. And although there's allusions to him in these stories here in Daniel 8 through 12, much more focus seems to be on a man named Antiochus and the persecution he gave to Jewish believers in the one true God. Mark Dever once told a story that in the 1990s, a gentleman came to his church in Washington, D.C., just five blocks down from the Capitol building, and his life was radically transformed by that first visit to Capitol Hill Baptist Church. The reason his life was transformed wasn't because of an amazing sermon that Mark preached. It wasn't because of the excellent music. It wasn't because of a scripture reading. It wasn't even because someone reached out and did some sort of kind or generous act of love. He said that his life started to be transformed at the coffee and cookie time after church. As the service ends, Capitol Hill Baptist Church has the custom of hanging around and lingering and talking with one another, similar to what we do before service at 10 o'clock, hanging around, talking, getting to know one another over cookies, oftentimes, donuts. The man visited Capitol Hill Baptist Church during the Clinton administration, and Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky were going through a huge scandal, as many of you are aware of, and there, right just a few blocks down, was a church where everyone was gathering and talking not about the news of Bill Clinton or Monica Lewinsky, 
everyone around was, in the offices, on the streets, in the neighborhoods, in their homes. But no one was talking about Bill Clinton or Monica Lewinsky at cookies and coffee time. Everybody was talking about God, His Word, the sermon that was just preached. People were talking about their relationships with Jesus Christ and how they could pray and encourage one another. And this started a transformation in this man's life. He had never met people that cared about what seemed to him as so insignificant and unimportant matters when everyone else seemed to be talking about what really mattered in the news that week. What really matters? Will our church be driven in this way? More by the news headlines in the world or by the message of God's word? That's what I want you to consider as we work through this text. As I mentioned, chapters 8 through 12 is very much a historical event, but from the perspective of God. Some scholars debate as to whether or not this is a backwards look on these historical events or a forward prophetic look. I'll leave that for you to discuss and debate. I have no answer to give to you that I think is definitive. There's good arguments on both sides as to when Daniel may or may not have been written. The overview I want to provide for you to just get a basic grapple of some hands around 8 through 12, which is a long section of Scripture. You can be rest assured my hope is not to end at 2 o'clock, not read all of it and comment on all of it as we've done in the past. This is, as many of you might know, one of the most confusing, difficult, and often debated sections of the Bible. So here's just a quick little overview, headlines. Chapter 8 is a vision about a ram and a goat. And if you've been reading Daniel so far, that's not so strange. If you're here for the first time, welcome. Welcome to Daniel and his apocalyptic literature. The ram and the goat clearly represent the empire and kingdom of Media and Persia, which if you read the whole chapter, you'll see, oh yeah, there's a vision, and then there's an interpretation, and it's about two kingdoms, and the kingdoms that fight and clash, and what happens there. Then, chapter 9 is a prayer from Daniel that you already heard read this morning, And then after that prayer, you have a response from God to the prayer. Then chapters 10 through 12 is a section that is all tied together. It's it's one long vision. It covers those three chapters. And it's really about wars between a king from the north and the south. And then, as I've kind of alluded to, there is all kinds of debate who that king is and who it isn't. I do think Antiochus is probably one of the most likely candidates. But again, you can agree to disagree. That's not going to be our focus this morning. With these chapters being, like I said, debated and long, I'm going to just boil it down to three simple, very clear application questions for us based on these texts and my study of them. First question, do you pray like Daniel does? Second question, do we trust in the timing of God? Third question, do we have a reason for hope, even when everything around us seems hopeless. I want to take these one at a time, and I want to begin with Daniel's prayer that was already read for you in the service. Do you pray like Daniel? As Eddie helpfully pointed out, did you notice the way Daniel prayed? Did you notice that in the middle of all this world history is a simple man's prayer? Why is that important? Because again, the Bible has a different perspective of what really matters, and prayer really matters. Prayer really does work. Prayer really is communication with the God of the universe and the King of creation. And so this prayer is instructive, it's encouraging, it's convicting. It is very, very useful. 
If you wanted to remember very quickly, there's three very similar prayers that all are in chapters 9 of the Old Testament. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9. If you want to do something other than watch football later today, read these three chapters and continue meditating on whether or not your prayer life includes prayers of confession or of lament. The reason I bring this up is that as we read that prayer, I was extremely convicted by the fact that many Protestant Christians in our normal worship services fail to worship in this way, fail to pray in this way. We fail to incorporate, first and foremost, we language, and it's very much just a me and Jesus relationship with God. And this prayer smacks us in the face that we are a part of a community. We are a part of a people of God. Jesus did not just save you. He saved us. He saved the world. He saved the human race. There is a collective nature in the way that we should go about our lives. Therefore, our prayers should very often begin, as Jesus instructed us, to pray, Our Father who is in heaven. Have you ever noticed that little phrase, our Father, and had it arrest you for a moment? Why didn't Jesus say, my Father who is in heaven? Because he's teaching us to pray corporately. And so Daniel corporately prays a prayer of confession about the sin that got them into the mess that they were in to begin with. If you want to flip over, you can notice, if you didn't already, that chapter 1 begins the historical context of the book of Daniel. And it says in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that Babylon besieged They obliterated, they slaughtered people, they killed people, they destroyed the temple of the worship place of these people. And then they carried them off as slaves into a foreign land and then raised them up. And as you look, you'll see in Daniel chapter 9 verse 1, it is now the first year of Darius. This means that it has now been 70 plus years. And Daniel is now on this day praying to his God, and he is confessing sins that were done decades ago. Not often do we have a corporate identity problem of thinking about it's just me and Jesus. We have a history problem. Some of you are not 70 years old. Many of us in this room are below 70 years old, and you think sins of the past do not relate to today. You would not pray like Daniel if you have that mindset. Sins of the past Sins of past slavery that American Christians have been involved with when this nation was formed, we should not have to worry about that. That's not our problem. Hey, that's in the past. I think it was very appropriate that at one point in its history, the Southern Baptist Convention, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention made a statement, and the Southern Baptists collectively, of which this church is in partnership with, made a statement saying, we as a people confess our sin and in solidarity with Christians in the past who have so treated Africans the way they did in the African slave trade. Does does that sound inappropriate to you? It's different, I'm imagining. It's probably not the normal rhythm of your prayer life, and that's the very reason why we as a church have a commitment, if you've not noticed, that almost every other week we have a prayer like was prayed earlier in the service, a prayer of confession, a prayer of corporate confessing of our sins. And it is one of my convictions as a pastor, as this church was getting started, that I wanted that to be a normal rhythm and practice of our church life Because my guess is that many of you either come from churches or have been a part of churches that you've never done this before as a corporate body in your entire life in that church. 
And I don't think that instructs you well. I don't think that that helps you pray well. And I don't think that we should look upon that very favorably. This doesn't mean that we're better. In fact, the whole point of this is that we're not good. Therefore, we should confess. We should be humble. And so we want to ask, do we pray corporately? Do we pray historically? Do we pray about issues that only are about us? Or can we collectively, as Eddie so well led us this morning, as humans say, yes, God, we as humans have sinned against you. Yes, we, even though we're not in the state of New York, we, we confess God as a nation. We have allowed such sinful things to be celebrated. Let me give another specific example of a way that we as Christians might want to corporately confess in a present issue, not a historical one. Something that I want to remind you of that we talked about not too long ago in our teaching through the Sermon on the Mount and about judging one another. In that message, if any of you might remember, we talked a lot about same-sex attraction and the LGBTQ community that is very much feeling shunned and judged and disrespected by Christians. And some of you in this room might feel like, I don't understand that. I treat those people like they're made in God's image. And when I meet people that have that mindset or lifestyle, I want to love on them and befriend them in particular ways. But friends, be aware that many Christians have not. Three quick stories to help you realize this. A man named Eric came out to his parents, Christian parents, they told him, Eric, you're disgusting, you're perverted, you're unnatural, you're damned to hell. Not being able to cope with this, Eric took his life at the age of 19. Ben. Ben was a Christian who struggled with same-sex attraction and told his youth pastor about his feelings. His youth pastor then publicly told the entire youth group, said that, I know none of you want Ben in our youth group anymore. He's going to go to hell. He can't come to the mission trip anymore. Two months later, Ben also took his life. Third story, Leslie. She told her pastor that she was struggling with some gender identity problems, that she needed help. She was reaching out to him. The pastor quickly walked her out of the church building and said, never come back in here again. I've never heard these things happen at Embassy Church. But these are people who are naming the name of Christ, and this is the reputation that Christians have in this day, at this time. And I don't think it's inappropriate for us to talk about publicly repenting. If you're in this room and you've experienced these things from Christians, on behalf of Christians, we are wrong and we are sorry and we want to publicly announce that this is not the way of Jesus, this is not us living the way God has asked. Do you pray like Daniel? Let's move on to our second question. Do you trust God's timing? This is a big part of this section of Scripture, as some of you, like I said, might know because of the many debates and discussions. I want to turn your eyes to chapter 8, verses 13 to 14, and I want you to just start notice a thread about the timing that is talked about in this text. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? He said to me, 
For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So there's a, a vision, like I said, about two empires, a goat and a ram, and then it's the Media and Persian Empire. And then we're asked a question, how long? When will this happen? Fast forward now, keep, keep thinking in your mind this idea of timing, and notice the thread. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahuzeris, by a descent of Mede, uh, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books a number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Before Daniel says this prayer of confession, he's reminding us of the context of A, when it is that he's praying, which is the first year of King Darius, and B, that he was reading a prophecy of the Jeremiah in the scroll or book of Jeremiah, and it said that the time of exile would end after 70 years. So Daniel's praying and longing for God to answer that prophecy. Fast forward to verse 19. Notice the way the, the prayer is winding down. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Delay not. In other words, this prayer, in part, is about God. You promised that in 70 years, you would restore and deliver your people. 70 years has now come. So he's confessing. He is humbling himself, and he's saying, God, deliver your people. Come, come through on your promise. And then read now with me chapter 9, verse 24 and 27, as he is given an answer to his prayer. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. If we were doing a deep dive into this and doing a verse-by-verse -verse study, there would be a lot of questions that we could hopefully address. Many of them I will not address at all. However, here's the point I'm trying to make here. Daniel is praying at the 70-year mark. He is hoping and anticipating God will then deliver them and that the exile will end. The answer he gets that I just read to you, look right again at verse 24, 70 weeks or 70 sevens are decreed about your people. 
In other words, it's not just going to be 70 years. It's going to be 70 times 7, which is much longer than 70 years. In other words, the exile is not over, as you see, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. The reason why this nation was in Babylon, the reason why they were deported and had all of these horrific things happen was because of their sin. And that sin was not paid for. That sin was not dealt with. And so there's a question of how long and when is it going to happen? And then we had read for us, if you want to turn your Bibles over to chapter 12, a very similar conversation. In chapter 12, starting in verse 5, you'll notice that Daniel looks and he sees two standing on the other side of banks of, two different, of a stream, on one bank and on the other bank of a stream. And then in verse 6, it says, Someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And then look at verse 7. He says, And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Do you see the thread that I'm trying to point to here in these chapters? How long? When's it going to happen? Here's a prophetic date. Here's these many weeks and these many days, and so then how long? And I think looking at this one in chapter 12, as the whole book's coming to an end, this is a very helpful word for us in terms of God's timing. It is going to be a time, some cycle of time, weeks, months, days. I don't think we can be overly certain. It's going to be a time, and then it is going to be times. So not just one cycle of time, but multiple cycle of times after the first cycle of time. And then, it'll be a half a time. What, is, what does that mean? It means it's going to be long. Like, really long. It's going to take a long time for these things to happen. But ultimately, its days are numbered. The half a time means that it's not going to go on forever and ever and ever. These things will happen, and the enemy, his time will be cut short, about half a time. Time, times, and half a time. I think that's a helpful word for us, that we need to be patient with God's timing, that we are called to wait and trust God, even when there's things that we're praying and longing for, like Daniel is, and praying very eloquently, praying very corporately, praying very biblically. And God's answer is time, times. But know this, there will cut short the reign and rule of the kingdoms of this world. There will be a half a time, and it won't run its full cycle out, because my time will come. I don't know if you caught it when Hannah was reading, but look at the very last verse, a very somber note to finish the book of Daniel. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. I want you to think back to Daniel's prayer. How long? Do you remember Daniel chapter 6, the reason that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den in the first place? Do you remember what it was? He was praying 
he kept faithfully praying. It said three times every day he prayed facing Jerusalem. Do you think, based on Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 that we read, and Daniel 6, his commitment to keep praying, even if it means he might die, that Daniel was committed to praying for the restoration of Israel? Like, more than anything, he wanted to see that happen. And here's how the book ends. Daniel, you're going to die. And you're going to be buried right here in foreign land. You're never going to see the restoration of Israel. I don't know about you, but that sounds terrible. Like, what? If I pray like Daniel, then that means God answers my prayer and I get what I want. If I pray like Daniel, I need to learn that God's timing is so different than my timing. This is why 2 Peter chapter 3 says, For the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. How many of you right now, if you're honest, are struggling with waiting on something? That the timing of God does not seem to match your timeline. Are you able to still trust and still have hope if that thing that you're waiting for never comes to fruition in your life? You never see the fruit of it. You never see the answered prayer. Daniel never saw the answer to his prayers. And my guess is he prayed better and more faithful and more consistently than any of us in this room combined. How long? The one thing I think we must say is it's long. And we don't know when it is. So do not be like Harold Camping or anyone else that uses these scriptures to predict the end of the world. The one thing I think we can be pretty certain of is that however long it is and whenever it is, you don't know. So don't act like it, don't talk like it, and do not give ear to anyone who thinks they do. Tons of Christians have been led astray by dozens and dozens of people who have used the very text that I just read to you and said, I have calculated it out. Here is when the time comes. One particular story of this is how a Christian maxed out all of their credit cards in 1994 because Harold Camping predicted that based on the book of Daniel and the scriptures that we just read, Jesus was going to return. And he had the date figured out. And he said that even though Jesus said, you will not know the day or the season, Jesus didn't say you won't know the month or the year. So he predicted that a month in 1994 it would come. So previous to that, some Christians, and these are real stories by pastors who shared, they got in terrible financial troubles. And when they talked to their pastors about it, they said, who cares? In a few months, Jesus is coming back, so we don't have to pay our bills. Another person was having serious marriage problems, and his wife and children left him. And one pastor reached out to this man and said, have you tried to reconcile with your wife? Have you tried to get your family back together? He says, why? I don't need to. In a matter of months, Jesus is going to return and all of our problems will go away. These are real problems that have crept up in recent days in the history of the church. If there's one thing that can be certain about the timing of God, you don't know it, so don't act like it. And don't listen to anyone who gives you counsel as if they do. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some understand slowness. But he is patient, and he is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance.
Are you able to trust God's timing? Or do you feel like He's too slow? Daniel never got to see it. He prayed. But he prayed with hope. And you and I, my friends, can have hope to persevere, even knowing that even if we pray like Daniel and we trust God's timing, and we may never see the full fruition of our prayers, there is a reason for hope. Do you have it? Do you have a reason to keep praying? Praying like Daniel. Look again at chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. These are the hope-filled climax of what is not just a perplexing, but an amazing book of Scripture. Chapter 12, starting in verse 1, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never had been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. If you hone in on verses 2 and 3, you'll see that right before them, there is a phrase, your people shall be delivered. Verse 2, many who are asleep in the dust shall awake. This is a reference back to Genesis chapter 3. Anybody who knows anything about the Bible would have caught it. From dust you were made. And from dust you shall return, that because of your sin, death comes into the world. Asleep in the dust. It is a common euphemism to use sleeping for dying throughout the scriptures and the ancient world. So asleep in the dust makes it a double clear metaphor. Asleep in the dust. It means you have died. The many who have died shall then awake. Instead of dying in the dust, you will awake You'll be risen from the dead. Many who are dead will rise again from the dead. Verse 3, they will shine like bright stars above, like the stars in the sky forever. This shining like stars will happen eternally. These two verses have become central for the Jewish view before Christianity even comes around. Jewish people have believed in a resurrection from the dead because of this verse. It's not the only verse. In fact, one of the prominent scholarly academic works on the resurrection, written by N.T. Wright, makes this comment about this verse, and I think it's extremely useful for us. He says, this is the clearest Old Testament passage, passage about the resurrection from the dead. Virtually all biblical scholars agree that it does indeed speak of a bodily resurrection, and that is meant in a concrete sense, not an abstract sense. This text draws on older texts, like the Genesis 3 one I referenced just a second ago. It draws on older Old Testament texts and shows us how those passages should then be read. In other words, to read Daniel 12 is to stand on a bridge between older Old Testament passages about the resurrection 
and future writings that would happen during the days of Jesus. This passage helps us look both backwards and forwards. Many people think that Daniel could have been written as one of the latest Old Testament texts talking about the resurrection. And so when N.T. Wright's talking about it, referencing not just Genesis 3, but Isaiah and several different psalms that speak of this day of coming back from the dead. And the language fits very close to what Daniel says here. So that's what he means by it's a bridge between these former poems and conversations, and it, it just crystallizes them. It brings them all to a clear point. There will be a resurrection from the dead. And in this text, it says that the wise and the righteous will shine and twinkle like stars in the sky. There's been some that have thought that that means that when you're risen from the dead, you turn into a star, which is missing the language here. It says, like a star in the sky. It's not saying literally you will be a star. So if someone has passed on and you say they're looking down from above because they've become a star, that's not good biblical exegesis. That is not good theology. You should not look as your Friends and family members pass on up to the stars and think that they're looking down on you because they become a star. That's pagan mythology, not biblical Christianity. So what should our hope be in when our friends and family pass away? And this happens quite regularly, as you might imagine, as I have conversations as a pastor and people die and I go to funerals and I officiate in some of these. And in the most recent funeral I attended, I remember talking to some of the church members of this church and they said, hey, my grandfather just passed away, and as we were in the hospital, there was all this question and discussion about where is he now and what's going on? And I said, listen, there's a lot of those questions that I just don't have answers for. But here's the answer that we do have. This is the hope that we do have. As you take your grandfather and as you place him in the ground, he will rise again. The body that you see in the casket, and as you say goodbye, and as you have your time of grieving, it is not the last time you will see that body. That body will be raised. That body will be transformed. That body will be like a seed planted in the ground, and it will bear fruit in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, when will that happen? A time, times, and about half a time. But it will. And that's what our hope is in. It's in the hope of resurrection. And friends, so many times I feel like Christians put all their hope in life after death, meaning what happens right after I die. And they're all focused about what happens immediately after death. Good thing to think about, good thing to talk about, good thing to look forward to, being with the Lord. That's not the main message of both the Old and New Testament. The main thing we should be talking about, the main thing we should be looking for is not life after death, but the life that happens after death. Namely, resurrection life, when your body will be raised. And the people who stand firm, as chapter 11 gives context, if you read over chapter 11, you'll see that those who know their God will stand firm. And so do you know your God? Do you know that He will defeat the powers of evil and darkness? Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that you will shine like stars, like stars? By the way, stars are often... In, in reference to kings and queens. So the idea here is that that image of God that we talked about last week, about the Son of Man and Psalm 8, and that we were made a little lower than the moon and the stars in the sky. You will shine like the stars in the sky. You will be a ruler over God's new creation, like a king and queen, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. 
This is elevated language. It is that people who have died and stood firm when Antiochus or whoever you want to think these people were, Alexander the Great, whatever sort of martyrdom and atrocities and persecution happened, God's people will be raised to a state of glory in the new world that is only best described as shining like a star in the sky. Some Bible students were working very hard to try and figure out Bible prophecies like this. Day and night, reading, studying, praying, working, and they just got stuck. They couldn't figure it out, so they stopped, they took a break, and they were walking out of their building, and they ran into a janitor who was reading his Bible to the very passage they were trying to figure out in terms of what its prophecy meant, and one of the students very cynically looked over and told the janitor, good luck trying to figure that one out. The janitor looked back up at him and said, I've got it all figured out. They, of course, were stopped in their tracks and said, what do you mean you've got this all figured out? He says, it's quite simple. Jesus wins. Friends, I don't have chapters 8 through 12 all figured out. But it is very, very clear that whether you're a janitor and have no Bible degree or no study of the Bible, Jesus wins. The resurrection that Jesus had on the third day after he was dead and buried and in the tomb and then came to new life on resurrection Easter Sunday morning is the resurrection that won. And all the battles that are being discussed and all the kingdoms that come and go in chapters 8 through 12 or in the book of Revelation or even now as we look around the world and we say, how long, O Lord, how long until you make your return and make things right? Jesus wins. You can be confident of that, and you can know it's a certainty, not just because God said it, but because he already started the process with Christ's resurrection. After a cold week like we've had here in Chicago, and all the hype of the polar vortex, and then this warm Sunday weather that feels almost like spring is around the corner, when we know it's probably not. I don't care what Puxatani Phil saw his shadow or not. I have a feeling we're in for a long haul yet again here in Chicago. But it reminds me of that flower that I've mentioned. The crocus flower that pops up out of the snow before the spring season officially begins. If you have it, look for it. It's a picture of hope. All around you, you look and you see white fields of snow and you see the the dark feeling of the winter blues in your heart and in your home and All around us, you see dead trees, and it seems like how long until spring comes and it warms up and we're not stuck and cooped up inside and sick and sharing germs and ah. How long, O Lord? And then right before spring comes, before any other flowers start to bloom, way, way early is the crocus flower. It pops up through the snow. And that beautiful picture of that flower in the midst of all the deadness and darkness is the picture of resurrection. Spring is coming. You know it's coming. You have reason for hope. You can look. The crocus flower is the resurrection of Jesus that poked up through the deadness of this earth. My friend, put your hope in Jesus. Pray like Daniel and trust in God's timing precisely because of Jesus coming and taking on our sin, dying on a cross, rising from the dead. And then he already now is ascended like a star in the sky, shining and glorying over us as the ruler and reigning king of the heavens and the earth. 
as we close up Daniel, regardless of what happens in our political sphere, regardless of what happens this week, regardless of what happens in your life, regardless of how many times you pray and pray and pray three times a day and God doesn't seem to answer, you can trust and wait. Because even if you don't see it in this life, you will be raised if you're in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you now for the good news that we have of resurrection hope. That this prophetic word in Daniel came to fruition like a crocus flower popping up. We thank you that the first fruits have already happened. That one day a great harvest of resurrection will happen. We thank you, God, for the ways that we have heard and seen and been given strength by your word. We want to pray now for all of us in this room who are struggling and are waiting, waiting for a marriage partner and wondering, am I ever going to get married? Waiting to grow or establish their family in a particular way. Waiting for a friend or family member to finally turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus. waiting for the political turmoil of our nation or our state or the nations of this world that are raging against the Lord and his anointed. God, as we wait, give us reasons to hope. And I pray, God, my prayer as the pastor of these people is that this would not just be a mental ascent. This would not just be something that encourages for the day, but this would be the day in and day out reality to which we live in. And that that reality would transform everything about our perspective, about our mindset, about our prayers, about the reason we can have hope. And my prayer for anyone here who does not believe in resurrection hope, God, would you so tenderly and sweetly show them your kindness and lead them to repentance and see and savor and glory in the cross and the resurrection from the dead and the ascension to heaven and your promise to return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.